0: welcome everybody this is the reality Zars podcast and i'm your only host tonight nate i think tony's at work uh i am honored i am privileged i'm so stoked i have richard grove on man
1: how Nate. you how you doing man
0: dude i'm doing awesome doing awesome uh richard this is like a dream come true for real um i first heard about your show or i just first heard about you in general actually from listening to pete Quinona's show i've been listening to his show from the beginning and uh i just want to give you a personal like thank you because like I think that your show listening to it and I, I ended up listening to your entire archive of the peace revolution podcast uh, really woke me the fuck up, man. Like I'd sit there for hours just listening to your show. And from there I found James Corbett from there. I found uh, I found uh, James Evan Pilato, which I've also had on the show. And um, yeah, it's, been a dream come true, dude. Thank you so much. You got me ready for 2020. If I hadn't heard you, you and your show, I would have been a dummy and I might have got a fucking needle in my arm. So thank you.
1: <laughs> you uh, you're you welcome. Uh, half the thanks goes back to you because you found out that such an archive of evergreen knowledge was available and you did the right thing. You consumed it and you bettered yourself for it. And um, so knowing is half the battle, as they used to say on G.I. Joe. And then nope. Corbett and Pilato, man, I've known them. Like i started podcasting in 2006 i think corbett's show started in 2007 Pilato was already broadcasting because he's a radio geek from from college and shit. like he's really nerdy about that stuff which i admire i always aspire to be more nerdy right so i say that with reverence I've known those guys for like the whole time I've produced and they've been ever solid. And one of the most brilliant things they ever did was new world next week and just start yeah. getting together on this weekly thing. And I was like, Hmm, I don't know. Like, is this going to, and then thousands of episodes later, like it's still gone. And uh, cause I was just like, well, people pick up on it. Is it enough? You know, three stories in 15 minutes type of thing because I'm always into the long form content and trying to make people's attention spans longer, but without, you know, Corbett's, uh, short little nine 11, the conspiracy theory proven, you know, wrong in five minutes or anything. They, they've they always made like a good condensed little short form content with that new world next week series and like elements of their own production always stand alone as uh, awesome. And I'm glad you got to meet them through the podcast. That was the whole idea. It wasn't just about like me or my, my story. It's about, there's these things going on. There's these other people looking into it. There's a whole bunch of people that came in generations before us and listen to what they had to say on these topics. So in the peace revolution podcast that I did from 2006 or 2009 to 2018, um, a lot of those episodes are mega episodes, dude. So for you to get through a 20 hour episode on the, all the things about JFK assassination, you'd never heard and like to preserve the evidence in a time capsule. I mean, that that says a lot about you and your attention span. And that was one of the things I noticed was that the things that were going on and the people doing them depended on people having too short of attention span to realize what's going on. So Peace Revolution starts out kind of you know slow, couple-hour episodes. But then by the time you get to episode 20, it's like you got an eight-hour banger here of chock full of UN, Agenda 21, all this sort of stuff that you need to know. And then those components all fit together, and they tell a bigger story, a meta story. And so, yeah thank yeah, you for brother. listening
0: yeah absolutely thank you for making that dude That is, it's just such a fucking treasure trove for like humanity in general and i love what you do as far as like you really push the trivium and the quadrivium and things like that and trying to teach people how to think and all before the education got that people- into the,
1: yeah before we even got into like here's what's going on it's like the first thing is let's let's learn how to use our brains right and a lot of podcasts like why would you go back and listen to an old podcast like i built them as works of art that are conceptual and evergreen to like provide these insights into the blind spots that we've all inherited and once you like illuminate all these blind spots you have a much better clear direction in the world and and you're not bumping into things that you don't know about all the time yeah it's like
0: history in that way because it's like some so many of those things like they are a time capsule like very much so like listening to like some of those names that i hadn't heard of in fucking two decades or something uh but like it all of the lessons that can be learned from those are timeless and so it's like it's really it's awesome dude it's fantastic
1: well i just pointed people to it last week because let me see if this works let's see is it gonna work oh look it works uh we had part one of our interview with whitney webb because i read not just volume one, but I read volume of two, Will. right? So she's coming back this week and we're going to cover volume two, but a lot of the names in volume one where people I got to know while doing the peace revolution series, like on Iran Contra and BCCI, all the Ednan Khashoggi, all the arms dealing, the narco trafficking, that history you need to understand. Well, it turns out you also need to know that to understand the Epstein uh, web of personalities and it goes back decades. And so, um, Yeah, so when someone reads this book, it's kind of dense because you got all these new names you might not be familiar with. But I also wanted to comfort people and say, look, if you are interested in learning that, go back and listen to a Peace Revolution episode. Listen to like five different takes or perspectives on these people. Make them three-dimensional characters that are human beings, that are flawed, and then sometimes they're also evil, right? It's not all accidental, circumstantial (laughs) uh, incompetence that's going on. There's coordinated, and that's what I think people need to be aware of. There are coordinated efforts to that exist that are not friendly to you, your family, your endeavors, or your life, and we should be yeah, listen to, to each your other. Show
0: li- I was I've been listening actually I was trying to re listen to some of the old stuff today, and I just listen, You don't ever like say this person is evil, but you, you line it up pretty damn well. You like go like, and so I like that you let the audience make that decision for themselves, but man, some of those things are just so damning. Like, uh, just like when they're sitting there, just like talking to like somebody that is wasting all this money, the Pentagon and things like that. It's like, how in the hell wasn't this done on purpose? You know, like it's done on purpose, but like you don't spell it out and say that it's just one of those things that like you let the audience figure it out for themselves. And it, that's really unique and cool too.
1: Well, cause it's not about what I think it's about learning how to think. And I explain how I think on these things yeah. and I leave it up to you to think for yourself on these things. And it doesn't have to be the same conclusion that I might be drawing. Cause you might have access to different evidence. Right. And then we share that evidence and we both grow. If we're in a learning capacity, if we're in a growth mindset, um, So there's, there's a lot to any of those types of communications and trying to get through to people and where do you start and where are their hiccups or where's their emotional trigger where you got to put it down and come back next week and talk to them about next week, uh, you know, after they've had time to think logically about things, or maybe they don't, maybe they're bought in, you know, in a religious type manner where it's an act of faith and, you know, uh, Fauci's the science. Right. There's that. There's that. I don't know. So I'm going to trust him as the patron saint of science. But if you look at what like Pfizer admitted to yesterday, uh, that's when the clip was going around, at least um, where they said they didn't they didn't test for uh, its capacity to stop transmission. And yet when everyone took that experimental gene therapy, they all took off their masks and celebrated like they were the winning class of humanity. But really, they were the super spreaders. Because the yeah. people who didn't get jabbed continued to vitamin themselves, social distance, like all the things that you do to keep from getting sick. So,
0: yeah, and yeah those are the things they never pushed to begin with. Like, and that, that's when I knew something was up. It's like, look, we all know how to not get sick exercise, get sunshine, drink lots of water, take vitamins, like stay <laughs> out of fear. Healthy. Yes, yeah. stay out of fear. Exactly. That lowers your like, if you want to be a hippie, it lowers your vibrations or if you, you know, it, it does affect your immune system and things like that when you're in stress and fear. And, and that's where they want you. You know, that's where these like parasitical human beings, they, because you're so reactive and then they can control you the easier, you know, just the manipulation and things like that. If you're reactive out of fear, then you're just you're in the palm of their hands. Yeah, and you're already
1: in a weakened state because you're assuming what they're saying is true. And then you take on the fear that they sell you because you don't check it at the door with some questions to be like, you know, what else is going on here? Like I had been on that topic uh, early on in March. I was looking for what other treatments were effective on SARS-1, right? And remdesivir came up. And then I learned about the liver failure and these sort of things that happen with that. And then uh, hydroxychloroquine. Actually, I found chloroquine. I found the studies on chloroquine first, and then I found through Elon Musk's tweet that uh, hydroxychloroquine looked like it was less toxic to the body. Right. So this was before Trump mentioned it at all. There was like, Hey, there's, there's a treatment available and it's like a uh, world health organization, you know, list of essential things that everyone should have. Right. Between that and later that year, I think Ivermectin came out right. As something that could be a uh, preventative. So with those, Early things, and then you see they're not trying to solve the problem, they're not trying to prevent spread, they're just trying to push agendas that existed before the thing happened, which points more and more to like that part was planned. And then with the yeah. bank 201 and these other things, that also foreshadows planning. And then the whole Peter Dazak Eco Health Alliance Fauci thing that now the mainstream media they're catching on two years later to this stuff. But Fauci, like Fauci had Dazak doing contracts still out to 2023, 2024, a year or two ago. So the fact that they're now giving them another contract is not surprising. But I guess like to Alex Berenson or whoever on Twitter the other day, it was like big news. It's like, no, they've been continuing. They never they did stop in April of 2020 because they got caught with the hand in the cookie jar. So they put EcoHealth on pause and there's a USA Today article about that. But then they picked right back up and kept funding more gain of function like they're going to maybe do it again. And it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty much beyond reasonable doubt that it came from the lab that it fits their agenda. So it wasn't accidental that they lied to us about that. And then they lied to us about the thing that was supposed to be the antidote.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's fascinating looking at government reactions to things. So like our government, I don't know what they told you. They just told you to put on a mask, maybe wear two, stay inside. We'll give you free donuts if you get jabbed and things like that. But like if you look at a country like, I don't know, it was somewhere in South America. I think it was like either Brazil or one of those countries, they were like sending them like ivermectin. They were giving them like uh yeah. like the zinc, they were giving them all these like all these things like that. It's just fascinating to me that I guess maybe those are the corporate interests that are tied into the pharmaceutical companies, why they wouldn't do that for us. Or it's just one of those things that it's like, it's weird because I don't think any government necessarily cares about you, but they definitely showed a little bit more caring for their basic human rights and their people than our government did. And it's just like, if they're willing to lie and they're willing to just like, basically just kill the old people like just throwing them in these you know this should be the biggest red pill and i really think it was for a lot of normal folks i think yeah. this was a giant way giant more than
1: nine eleven ever could have been for people they woke up through the pandemic because well, this was on a global fucking scale man they tried to shut yeah. down the world they did for the <laughs> most part yeah so those those places that uh, used ivermectin and zinc and these other effective treatments, they are likely places not getting UN funding or internationalist nonprofit kind of funding yet, right? So they're not on the take. But all the places that are civilized, like uh, an er- like um, uh, more westernized, let's say. I didn't mean civilized by westernized, but more uh, like already they're already on the brought to you by Pfizer tit. Yeah. Right. Whereas like other countries aren't so much there yet, so. Um, that aspect is like, those are holes. Those are people who left to their own designs found and were resourceful enough to find more effective treatments than all these other organizations that were tasked with it. Right. But if you actually look at their actions, as opposed to what they're saying at every step, at any time that you could bring down the fear or slow the spread or any of these types of things, stop the spread, they did the opposite right just start with the nursing homes the silent bloodbath but the silent bloodbaths in New York and Michigan by the governors yeah. who still haven't been you know i haven't seen adjudication on that yet and then you they got 6 will. million people from the lab no. outbreak or release and then you're going to have a billion people probably who took the experimental gene therapy that are finding out otherwise now
0: Dude, yeah, that's one of those things that you can only really speculate at this point, like, what was the point? Because, I mean, so, like, if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, they were just trying to make money. Uh, (laughs) And they just mistakenly, like, knew that there was going to be some, uh, you know, some side effects and things. And they were just like, well, we're going to get immunity and we're just going to make a bunch of money. That's like me giving them the giant benefit of the doubt. Otherwise, man, these same folks are like the eugenicists and have been, yes. and they have family blood ties to these things. And they
1: literally do want to
0: cull the population and, or sterilize a significant amount of the population. And it's just wild to
1: me. Yeah. It's the same group of people who would approve, you know, human experiments in Philadelphia or human experiments in North Carolina or Haiti or Puerto Rico. Like the, there was in the early 20th century, um, a guy named Cornelius Rhodes, no relation to Cecil Rhodes because it's a different spelling. Um, He worked in chemical weapons development and then he started blending that chemical weapons development and knowledge with the medical industry. And then he went to, I believe it was Puerto Rico and performed experiments on human beings, considering them a lesser race over just across the water in Puerto Rico. We can go experiment on those people. Then he brought that research back to the Rockefeller Foundation and the other foundations. And they gave him a post at Memorial Sloan Kettering hospital. Like that's how the, the, the cancer hospital in New York city started was Cornelius Rhodes. <laughs> this guy who had done these human experiments and using like in chemotherapy, comes from some of the chemical weapons things that they were developing back in like the 1920s some of the earlier chemotherapies Now i'm not saying that's how they do it today i'm just saying the origins when you look into yeah. the evolution of these things
0: he has some pretty gnarly quotes about puerto ricans too right is that the same guy that <laughs> says these are like the filthiest beasts and like the island would be so much better without them and he things talks like, about puerto, like, puerto ricans lower, the way that yeah.
1: <laughs> churchill talks about palestinians yeah which to me shows the ignorance of the the person, right? And I don't think Cornelius Rhodes or, or Churchill should be canceled for saying those things. I think if we don't know that they say those things, we don't know that they're racists, right? Yeah. And I think the cancel culture and all the censorship just covers up. And then you can't see who believes what, because everybody's not saying what they believe in every, anymore.
0: Well, I mean, that's the argument that could be made for things like segregation. It's like, I could go to this restaurant that doesn't want me in there because I'm a beaner. Right. And I'm just sitting there handing him money, Uh, but maybe I don't want to give my money to this racist piece of shit. So like if I knew that's how he felt, I'd go to the restaurant down the road. So, you know, I don't know. There's an argument to be made for that for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think if you look into like uh, because there's the New York Times used to have a way you could search its website and therefore its newspaper for the, the use of words over time. Right. So you could go in and type racism or racist into New York Times and you'd see a chart of its use. Right. And surprisingly, it had a big spike in its use. Like at 2000, you wouldn't you would expect maybe in the 60s, civil rights, these sort of things. Right. No, no, no. 2012. When everybody's pretty much getting along, there's huge. So in the media, they drum up and start using the word and then people start to identify. Oh, I can use that as a thing to punch other people with. And then they had that. uh, So anyway, New York Times, I don't think has that feature anymore because people were like searching and understanding what was going on. So that's not a feature that's easily accessible. But then like it started when it was okay to punch a Nazi. I remember like seeing that and I don't agree with the Nazi, but you can't just go up and make like uh, violence as a preemptive strategy, you know, cold cock the dude from behind type thing. Right. Like that's not a good precedent to set. Just like after somebody went on stage, you know, at Chappelle, then all of a sudden people were running on stage and going after people.
0: Yeah. So That's that slow erosion of just like, um, I don't know, just like human respect, I guess. It's like one of the, it's that slow erosion where like, cause back in the day, right? The ACLU, they were like, I'll defend your right to say whatever you want. Like we'll literally defend like the KKK going into like like a jewish town and being a-holes right and they used to say like we'll defend their right to say whatever they want like they can't be violent but you can say what that's you a want. real thing and i think
1: that was the skokie illinois and then that was uh yeah uh, caricatured in the blues brothers movie right and the guys get off you know pushed off the bridge and they made they yeah made, but my point would be about the nazi if if you feel that you're super, like you have superior philosophy to the person like intellectually bankrupt is punching them in the head. That's not, that's not proving your point. Yeah. It's not it's not helping other people to see why it's bad to be a Nazi. Right. So that thing just took off. And then you had like all the Antifa stuff come after that in but fact, it's like, it
0: victimizes them in a way and then makes people more intrigued. Like, why are they doing that to shut them up and things like that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. When they should have their ideas challenged in public so people can see how empty they are or how valid they are. And right. then people go, oh, okay, this guy's an idiot. Okay. So
1: that's how we, you and I, logical, reasonable people might uh, deal with it, but they want it to continue on and to fester and to putrefy and to like make civil war so they don't have that mm-hmm. happen, right? So they're like, they put that everywhere and they're like, that's a good thing, right? Instead of saying, hey, you know, maybe maybe that's not the right thing to do in that situation. Maybe there's another way to express your point and communicate rather than pugilism on an unwitting opponent, right? And then so there's, there's been- a... A lot of totally. videos like that's been a trend where people just go down the street and clock somebody, like you know, the old lady walking down the street. I live outside school. of Portland, man. I, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I live in this, yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about. But I was gonna say is like uh you can definitely see that creep because I've listened to like some old liberals that would talk about um the erosion of, uh, institutions like the ACLU from these very specific, very like, uh, idealist, well, I don't know, they had an ideal, they were ideologues, right? These folks that were like trying to take over the ACLU, the more progressives instead of the actual liberals that actually believed in liberal, like liberal fundamentals and things like that and freedom. Yeah. And just their erosion of those institutions and I think that you can make a pretty good argument that that could be tied to things like the Fabian Society and things like that that will take you back to like you know again like people like Cecil Rhodes, the Rockefellers, those type of those type of folks that were like all about basically taking over institutions slowly and surely. You know that their whole Fabian saying is like, "For the time we strike, we wait, but when we strike, we strike hard." That. And, and so like, they're the folks that like made the world economic forum, like they started the world economic forum and things like that. And so you, you, I listen to someone like Klaus Schwab talking about how he has young leaders in Canada's parliament and like half of them are all world economic forum stooges basically. And what I hear is him saying like, I've got a bunch of Fabian socialists in the, in the government over there. And when I am ready, when I say strike, they're ready. You yeah. know, it seems pretty crazy. So,
1: Fabius Maximus was uh, was a Roman general and he, his war strategy was different than what was taught. So he did war of attrition. He did t- attack you from behind and cut off your supply lines, all sorts of creative stuff that's still used today. So these English socialists who wanted worldwide communism and them to sit on top of it as like a super group, uh, they adopted Fabius's name and called it the Fabian Society. Now, their logo is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And then they also have a, have one where they have the world and they're pounding on it like it's an, on an anvil and they're shaping the world into their image. So they're telling mm-hmm. you straight out, here's who we are. Here's how we operate. And we're going to operate so slowly over time that you can't perceive us moving like uh, the sun moving across the sky. But if you actually pay attention, it does. It's moving, right? Yeah. So. Um, They have
0: plausible deniability that can always just be like, well, we just introduced the welfare state and this is a good thing, but it's like, it's slowly eroding just like the social fiber and it's them just moving in and just like, yeah, it's pretty wild when you do some, do some research on them it blew me away because i was always trying to make a connection i was like man this seems like this is like these guys are shaking hands behind closed doors and then you look into the fabian society and you're like holy crap okay well this is where they're and they're, they're all and they're, Fabians.
1: Also, they're <laughs> also the people who funded hitler they also love eugenics there there's a whole they love darwin and evolutionary pr- preservation of the, of the favored races because they're the favorite yeah. races right um and then there was uh orwell's 1984 is pointing at english socialism like he's he couldn't have put it more bluntly he calls it ing english socialism that's the fabian socialist so he's like yeah. it's left to their own devices here's the world that they're going to create and it's like a jackboot stepping on the face of freedom forever
0: yeah the other little uh easter egg in that was because it was started in 1884 and so he wrote 1984 this is 100 years this is what they're gonna do and damn was he he's pretty damn close man yeah and so we're just watching
1: those guys yeah. you know uh like he had an interesting background and some people were like well he was one of them i'm like no i think he had to work amidst them and he disagreed with their plan and he died uh you know uh, kind of not a great death so it wasn't like he was a favorite person like outis huxley on the other hand gets to go out by saying give me 25 milligram lsd right so like Look at how people exit this world as to whether or not they were serving the empire. Yeah, as an example, yeah, they man. seem to have a, you know, a more cushy path. Look at, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger is going to be a hundred soon. David Rockefeller was like a hundred, you know. So when everybody's removing all the obstacles from your life, you can have a lot more longevity. Uh, Orwell died, I think, in his forties, probably or early fifties. Tuberculosis, I think it was.
0: So do you think that there is a tie between I mean, I'm sure there is um, like because I'm looking at things like Vanguard and BlackRock. Yeah. Uh, those have to be directly tied with all this, too. Right.
1: One hundred percent. man. you're not going to yeah. have a Vanguard or a BlackRock that's above the people that print the money in the first place. So the people that print the money have like Vanguard, BlackRock as big holding companies and ways that they can direct, you know, infiltrate in the market without putting their names directly in it anymore. But the way the way it goes is the people with the money printing power attract people who want money. They give it out to their cronies. And that's how those agendas all get followed. The trickle down is these companies or whatever get money and they hire people. Right. And that's a you know thousands of people working on the agenda of that company. And they have many of those setups. And then they have Bilderberg and World Economic Forum to kind of uh, working group the outer circles of those setups. But from the inside, from the get go, it's like deep capture. Yeah. You know, we you owe 30 trillion as debt in this country, 30 trillion to who I have a magic checkbook here, yeah. 30 trillion. Who do we make it out to? Yeah. Who, who do we owe the debt to? Because as a country, we would owe it to ourselves and we could just write it off and be like, we're done. Let's move and make a new system. We could also make a new system, pay off the 30 trillion, then delete that system and make a new system out of debt, like out of debt free. And be independent of all that but you can't do that if no one admits that that's kind of like the the string that's holding it all together
0: yeah now yeah it's fascinating man because like i i've discussed this on the show before it's like it's this was definitely done and planned like this um basically just eroding the economy like this was totally done on purpose and to get into this massive amount of debt because like like okay, the the United States, we win our independence from from England. One of the first things that England did to screw with us was they started like printing counterfeit uh, American dollars and Heck flooding yeah. our country, and it, that was easily seen as economic warfare at the time. That was yeah, like, they're like everyone they're like
1: was, you want to be your own country, game on, boys. Here's yeah. how it rolls. And then we adapted to that, and we started to get more a little bit more counterfeit, you know, uh, uh, protective documents and eventually we have somebody that you know anti-counterfeiting that turns into the secret service and owns the president right there's a whole interesting evolution to that sort of thing um but really it's the struggle between america and britain militarily and that goes on twice because 1812 to 1814 was the second one and they burned down the white house but they didn't win so then they came back with economic partners Because in between the time that uh, 1812 war goes on and like the American Civil War, the British government gets in cozy with the Rothschilds. I mean, the Rothschilds Mm -hmm. help them against, uh, you know, give them money to Wellington so they can defeat Napoleon. And then the Rothschilds uh, save the Bank of England. And then the Rothschilds buy the Royal Mint Refinery by like 1828. So all the gold bullion, everything's going through them. Right. And then they start servicing uh, the gold rushes around the world, and all that gold is going back, you know, into that system. They got to set up a bank out west in San Francisco called Wells Fargo so they can start having stagecoaches deliver, right? So there's all these interesting pieces of history we're not told. By the time Lincoln's assassinated, and that's an interesting story in and of itself, because one group is gonna say the Rothschilds were friends of Lincoln and weren't on the side of the Confederacy. When the evidence shows they were 100% on the side of the Confederacy, partnered with the British, that they call in their writings Lincoln a thief. They called Lincoln a thief. So that would tell me, since you're on the side of the cotton trading, you know, uh, black marketeering going on during the Confederacy and giving them loans, right? They denied the loan. They said um, that was a Christian banking house down the street, and that wasn't us. But then you find that that Christian banking house poses as a front for the Rothschilds for their investments yeah. in Palestine at the same time in that century. And that there's a whole bunch of records on that. So then if you try that claim again, it's like that doesn't hold water and it definitely looks like. So very interesting history. Uh, Lincoln had to print his own greenbacks cause he didn't have the cooperation of the central bankers for some reason for the union and the anti-slavery movement. Uh, and then right after his death, Uh, They really come in, start to fund all the robber barons to do the infrastructure of expanding out west. And then by the early 1900s, uh, building the subway systems in New York and financing those projects. And by the time World War One comes around, those financial influences have enough clout in America to get us into the war, not on the side of Germany. And like one third of America at that time was related to Germany, but on the side of Britain, our former enemy, which is kind of crazy but they had some propaganda campaigns and a whole bunch of psychological warfare in the news and newspapers and these sort of things. And people went along with it and millions of Americans. I'm thinking I'm forgetting the numbers of millions of people died in that war. And I'm pretty sure, uh, even though America entered late, we lost a lot of, uh, like a whole generation of young people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. World war one was just terrible. And, um, it's just, that was actually part of the book that Sally's writing. It's pretty fascinating. He talks about how uh, World War I, oh, what was it? Well, basically he thinks, uh, I don't want to give away too much of his book, but he thinks that um, with Lincoln uh, starting the civil war, that actually like set up a lot of different things and allowed us to get into World War One. And he has a bunch of really fascinating, like uh, ties and interesting stuff. And then of course, because of World War One we that like started i mean started a lot of the things that ended up causing world war ii and uh
1: well they changed our history american history was changed after world war one to be more in line with getting back together with great britain so just the fact that they knew enough to come into our system and start changing our history to prepare for the special relationship and then the five eyes spy on everyone and control the world type of thing Uh, I mean, all the all the documents are there. It's just that the people who have told this story over time have been censored out of the narrative and their books are harder to find. But I found books like back in the mid 20s where they're calling this out. I think there's one called the Poisoned Loving Cup. Um, And it's it's an expose of like how America is being anglified or, you know, Britishized.
0: Uh, That's fascinating. And you can tie that back. Do you think that uh, a lot of that has to do with Cecil Rhodes? 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. And he his was death, yeah.
1: What he did was he was funded by the Rothschilds. He went to Oxford. He understood the goals of the empire, and he was a Freemason, and he understood their goals and how they work to facilitate the empire's growth. Right? Yeah. The growth of the empire could be mapped by British Freemasonic – lodges around the world and then they turn into trading posts then they turn into colonies so you can see the maps change over time and the first thing they do is go set up a freemason lodge there so with Rhodes representing the goals of the freemasons the rothschilds and the british empire that is setting the stage of world war one the balfour declaration the future state of israel all that stuff because kine weitzman uh Herzl, those guys were writing back and forth with cecil Rhodes, and they're like hey we, we like what you got going on down there we'd like to do something similar which what Rhodes did turned into apartheid and what these other yeah. guys did turned into apartheid as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent, dude. hundred percent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, I was doing a little research on Cecil Rhodes like early life. And so like, I guess his family was pretty, pretty well off. And his family sent him, this is the study that I heard. So they sent him to somewhere in Africa um, to, uh, to work on a cotton farm. Uh, so he was like running a cotton farm because I guess in the United States, this was like during the civil war. And so like all, like cotton fields were burning and there wasn't like people being they able to pick supply. it. And so yeah. yeah. They needed the, a second cotton supply. And then his brother got him interested in diamonds. And so he yes. s- went down to South Africa and he was trying to, and this is what I found so fucking fascinating, man. It was blowing me away because it's what they do now. He was like, he was watching all these South Africans and he was looking at them and he was like, How do I get these people to work in my minds? He goes, these people own their own land. They grow their own food. They don't want my money. They don't want to come and work for basically nothing to come work in my mind. How do I do it? And so he's like, you're watching him like figure out this conundrum. And he's like, well, the first thing he did was like, let's start taxing them. We need to start taxing them for, uh, you know, basically just existing. And so they just started doing that. And so they were forced to like do have to work a little bit, at least to get some of this money to be able to pay him these taxes. And then they were able to take away their land. And so then they weren't able to like grow their food anymore. And they just became more and more dependent. And so then they absolutely were forced into this like debt based slavery system where they had to go and work in his fucking minds to be able to pay the taxes, to be able to survive when before they they were just living off the land they were growing their own food they were happy they got to spend their time with their family and now they're fucking basically wage slaves and
1: they wanted it nothing to wild. do with building out his agenda or helping him out yeah. but then he finds leverage to force them and then similarly in order to expand his mines what he does is he goes out and buys up all the pumps and gets a monopoly on the pumps and then when his competitors mines flood he doesn't loan them or rent them the pumps and then they have to sell to him for pennies on the dollar. He goes in there with the pump. He's got a new mind because he can just outweigh them. <laughs> right. And so Dude, like, how do
0: people like that? He isn't just like a standalone genius, right? He has people around him in his ear. Like, how do people like, cause I'm like, I listen to things about Cecil Rhodes and I'm like, holy crap this is the most like Machiavellian evil psychopathic genius, but like nobody's that smart. You need a team of psychopaths. Oh, yeah. and he had a lot of mentors
1: yeah. before him and then he mentored a whole bunch of people that came after him that acted just like that. Right. So, uh, yeah, I don't even think that that Rhodes was necessarily like the most evil person ever per se. Right. Cause he's dead. I don't have, I don't hold feelings or hatred against people who, they're not even here anymore, man. That'd be silly. I'd be poisoning myself. So I see him as a flawed character, uh, grandiose ego, uh, very low consideration for his fellow human beings. Cause he was given a philosophy of, you know, Darwinism that says he's uh, a chosen favored race and that he could subjugate these people. Like it's in their science opposed, like supposedly. Right. So it's his, financing from the Rothschilds it's his later education at Oxford that gets him these more you know this plan that he heard from Ruskin about how the English-speaking tongue should rule the world and Cecil Rhodes is like oh let's do that and get America back into the empire is, is the next step to do that and so uh, leaving his great wealth I think he died at age 40 or 41 and he was homosexual so he didn't have any uh, legacy of children or anything like that so he gave all his money to Oxford for a secret society. And for the road scholarships the secret society became the round table for the commonwealth of the british empire or whatever they called it and it was a a group of press magnates other super influential people royalty uh you know having a top-down influence on what the empire is going to be and how to achieve that and uh th- from there they set up um the the pilgrim society in 1902 was an anglo-american uh like Cabal, if you will, planning for other people's futures. I call that, you know, not telling us that's a cabal. And then uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is funded by the Rockefellers. Ironically, Americans funded the British Royal Institute of International Affairs, among others. And then they create the CFR a couple years later here in America, which is a Soviet council to internationalize America on behalf of the British Empire. And uh, they're still very powerful today, 100 years later. <laughs> They're still like working unopposed, and people are like, "That's fine," you know. And the with the guy who's uh, recently the chairman of Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, is a Rhodes, a Cecil Rhodes scholar. That's how I should say it—just Cecil Rhodes scholar, because that yeah. way it just makes it sound less official. Rhodes anytime scholar. you
0: hear Rhodes scholar, anytime. Rachel Manner, who told yeah, us the all the words about back, the your neck transmission, stand up.
1: Yeah, George Stephanopoulos, yeah. Bill Clinton. There's a there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, Strobe Talbot, There's a whole bunch of these people that are allied with the opium monopoly and narco-trafficking and arms dealing of the British Empire still.
0: So that's fascinating, man. So I'm thinking about all this stuff, and it's like whenever somebody asks you, like, who is the they you're talking about? Yeah. It's a pretty good uh, place to point them. Well, let me. um... This is
1: they. (laughs) Let me do this for you that's a good question and people do that they, they ask who's they i could talk to him for five years about they. and here's how a conversation might start i'm going to put a book on screen here for you did that work yeah okay yep. this is the new freedom by woodrow wilson and there's the title it's the first edition and this is written from his campaign speeches that's a sweet this, book man and this copy was printed in london first printing in 1913 Okay. same year as the Federal Reserve, a call for the emancipation of the generous energies of a people. So people were enslaved. He wants to emancipate them from that slavery in this section called the old order changeth. He has this quote. Now, I had read about this quote online. I was suspect of this quote. I'd seen various versions of this quote. And the reason all those things exist is because it's an eight page quote where he tells you this story. But I'll just read, like, uh, the first two pages. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Since I have entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States, in the field of commerce and manufacture, are afraid of somebody, are afraid <laughs> of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they had better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. They know that America is not a place of which it can be said, as it used to be, that a man may choose his own calling and pursue it just as far as, uh, as his abilities enable him to pursue it. Because today, if he enters certain fields, there are organizations which will use means against him to prevent him building up a business that they don't want to have built up. Organizations that will see fit that, it, uh, that the ground is cut from under him and the markets are shut against him, right? So he goes on for like eight pages saying, there's, there's something going on here, kids, right? And that's how he gets Dude. elected, but he's representing, he's from Princeton University, he knows who he's talking against pretty well, and they put in the Federal Reserve with his blessing, which is the internationalizing of our whole 20th century.
0: Now, I've heard some people try to like tie this way back. They'll start saying things like uh, like the whole idea of centralized baking comes from like the idea of usury, which came all the way back to like Babylon or something
1: like. Sure. Like, there's like the think- Babylonian woe. There's a whole bunch of books. And, that, and there there is some history to that. But on the other flip side, uh, let me defend usury for a second if uh, you want to borrow money from me and I'm going to take a risk of maybe not getting it back, not getting it back on time, uh, other things that come with it, lawsuits, right? Maybe I want to make that not for free. Otherwise I can't afford to take that risk on a regular basis, right? So if people didn't want usury, then don't deal with people who are, charging interest right traditionally christians couldn't charge interest they didn't have the the banking right and so in europe uh the bankers for the european royals were usually people of jewish religion yeah i think that's just a fact it's not like an emotional it's like it's just a thing that went on because christians wouldn't do it so they filled that hole in the market yeah or, christians you know, and
0: muslims were yeah weren't allowed to use usury right yeah that is interesting
1: yeah so that's the history, fascinating yeah, the history and evolution of banking over time. Like one of the best books I could recommend is called The Lost Science of Money by Stevens Zarlinga. And it's like a 624 page definition of money because it gives you like 23 use cases over history. They use seashells here, they use Nomisma in Greece, they use these different things that were accepted as currency. And here's the good things or bad things about those things. But now you've seen the whole history of kind of what people have used. And now you have a better idea of what they're doing and the emptiness behind these debt-based notes that they give us like monopoly money.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. That's, it's just a fascinating thing. Like as you're reading those quotes and it's, it's, it's like they won't even say it over their breath, you know, like they won't name this group, which is so fascinating. In my head, it goes Illuminati. Yeah. So in (laughs) in my
1: terms, they name themselves through their own documents as a, for instance, when, Britain cuts a deal with the Zionist organization and says, we're going to give you Palestine in the future. That letter, which is known as the Balfour Declaration, Mm -hmm. uh, a letter from uh, his majesty's government to Lord Rothschild uh, to give him Palestine that the British didn't have control over yet, but they're fixing to if they won the war, right? Yeah. That letter has four drafts to get to the final copy. The first draft is a letter from Lord Rothschild to the british government saying here's what i want so basically he said here what i want they wrote two drafts and then said here's a final copy we're giving you like we're giving you the thing you're asking for so it's like a receipt for a transaction in history yeah and it's a really interesting piece but to answer the question of who are they i would point to uh a book like this the power elite by c Wright mills published by oxford university press. And I think this is 1956. So for a long time, it has been known that there's a group of people and this is an establishment status quo book. I mean, most of the people in here are people that were in the CFR in the state department, living in Georgetown, working in the dullest circles, uh, the Anglo American establishment. So the power elite is something that, you know, academic uh, intellectual informed people on such topics. That's something they would definitely have heard of, read in the past, and got some basis, right? You could go forward in time to Carol Quigley's books or Anthony Sutton's books, which do a good job of naming people. Uh, Secrets of the Federal Reserve comes directly from the records of the Library of Congress. That's another good one. Uh, But I would also go to David uh, Rothkopf's Superclass. I have two copies of it back there, but it's holding up some DNA. Um, Superclass is a book that says there's 5,000 people and they're the non-elected ruling class of the planet. It's very open about it. He works for the Carnegie foundation. He works for the Kissinger associates. Like he's part of the establishment and he's telling you very clearly, here's the 5,000 people that are in control that you didn't elect uh, more recent Do folks get
0: in trouble for writing stuff like that.
1: <laughs> well, No, like he goes on book TV and promotes it. Like they're just telling them like he's not a whistleblower. In fact, that yeah. same guy who wrote superclass is according to Alex Jones, the person who offered to bring him into like the council on foreign relations and all that stuff. Cause he, he tells that story sometimes. And that's the author of the book that he's talking about. So he's a real guy and he, you know, you can look up David, David Rothkoff and book TV and you'll see his superclass and he'll tell you, you don't even have to read the book. So for people who are like, that's interesting, but I don't have time or money to read a book. Just watch the video. You got a better thing to learn, you know? and then you don't have to know about that anymore cuz like you you learned that piece and now you can go forward with learning other things. More contemporary uh contemporary reference would be Christia Freeland. She wrote a book called Plutocrats, uh the world elite and how they're leaving you behind. Something like that. Now, she's a big deal cuz she's World Economic Forum board of directors. She's second in command in Trudeau's Canadian government, right? So she's like I forget mi- some ministry de- deputy prime minister type thing right and she could be the next prime minister of canada so now you start to understand when she makes these comments on tv about how they're going to seize bank accounts and trucker convoy and all this stuff the mask ordinances uh, jail time she's speaking on behalf of klaus and the plutocrats who really took control during the pandemic i mean their wealth skyrocketed they were all in the know no one pushed back nobody nobody hesitated. They were all coherently in lockstep while the rest of us were left to like, you know, triple mask and kiss our ass. So damn, yeah, they do exist. They are easily named. I can show you. Let me see if I, I don't have it open. So it'll take me a second to bring it up here, but I have a history blueprint where when I learn about these people, I, uh, I put it into a model. And then I can share that model with other people and they can learn similar things without having to do like all the work.
0: Is and this th- what you talked about on uh, Thaddeus Russell's podcast?
1: Uh, quite possibly. He might've asked me about that. Let me see if it, yeah, opened. it sounded like you
0: had, yeah, you had turned it into like, yeah, that's fucking neat.
1: All right. So the tricky <laughs> thing is, all right, I got this, I got it to open, but then I have to go to this screen, press this button. It's going to go black for a second. Don't panic. Okay. That button. And then I have to hit, uh, one of my monitors is out here. So I'm flying blind kinda. Let's see if I can get that other screen to size up. So you can see it, but it doesn't look nice. So let me see if I can Alt-Tab to get to that and stretch it out a little bit. All right, so in this model, and I'll just do it live here in a second. uh, I'll take you to a home thought Home thought for this model could be there Ian Fleming, right? And let me know if it stretches to the top of the screen. Are we filling the screen yet? Not a hundred percent
0: yet, but it's getting bigger. All right. Let's see what it yeah. looks
1: like. That's getting close. You get the gist. Yeah. Uh, Ian Fleming's, uh, you know, the author of James Bond. Everyone knows that, right? But what most people don't know is that he's educated uh, alongside people at Eton College. Uh, his... Great or his grandfather was Robert Fleming, who owned Robert Fleming and company, which did a lot of business during the opium uh, monopoly of the British East India Company. He's a billionaire. Right. So Ian Fleming and his brother come from a billionaire financing family who financed like the Harrimans. Right. The Harrimans were huge eugenicists, Nazi funding type people in America. There's like a hierarchy to these things. Now, Robert Fleming and company is still below the Rothschild family and, and dynasty Right. But he played uh, a really interesting part. And also like uh, the industrialization of Soviet Union and what became communist China was done through the Harriman's investment in the American International uh, Company. And so like the things that Fleming and company were funding were setting up what became the Soviet Union and the Cold War that Ian Fleming two generations later is writing about. So there's a lot of interesting history in asking the question, you know, who was Robert Fleming and company? Who's uh, the, the family? Like they're listed in Forbes as a, some of the richest families in the world. How did that stay off people's radar? Why did they not mention these things? Right. Very interesting. But also uh, the connections between um, some of the people that are working with Ian Fleming on projects while he's in MI6. So there's a whole lot just digging into somebody who's like, oh, Ian Fleming. Like, what did he do? There's a lot to any of these characters when you start to dig in, because some of them are like multi-generational players in an agenda. So when people are like, there's nothing unfolding, it's like, well, these families think there is, because they got generations of people participating in this unfolding narrative of the Great Reset we're experiencing right now.
0: Yeah, dude. So I'm curious what you think the role is for uh, like the Royal family. Cause I still think that they're pretty damn involved. Like Prince Charles himself, I guess he's King now. I don't know what he is. I don't know if he's been coronated or not, but he was really into like, I thought that I had heard some stuff from him, like speaking about like great reset kind of language, new world order kind of shit, even before Klaus, like him and Klaus were, uh, there's some interesting stuff man and I, I almost wondered if he had the old bird whacked so that he could
1: <laughs> finally get in there with his sausage yeah. fingers. all right so here's how that unfolds that's a good question and it's uh, it's something like this uh, I call him uh, kc3 you know King Chucky the uh, third has been at this game of the the green agenda, global warming, climate change the, all the things that are predecessors to the great reset. He's been doing it for like 50 years and when yeah. I heard about it in the 90s, uh, and then the early two thousands, I was like, this is such a joke, right? That, like Joan Vion, who wrote the United Nations global straitjacket book. She also wrote a book called, uh, Prince Charles, the sustainable Prince. Right. And then I'm like, what is it? And she was, she's pointing out, she's like the, the British monarchy is pushing this globalist agenda and it's like top down to the UN right from there. So when Klaus Schwab is saying something, he's doing it with the the approval of Prince Charles because the great reset was launched in a, you know, his Royal Highness Prince of Wales tweet where he talks about the great reset and build back better and all this sort of stuff. Right. So, uh, Prince Charles now KC three, definitely like, he's waited a long time to come to power. He's been planning on what happens when mummy dies for a long time and all this stuff that's hanging on for a
0: long time, man. <laughs> yeah.
1: And all this stuff that sounded silly, like, oh, you know, they're going to convince people that, you know, uh, cow farts are bad, right? Like the people who do all this industrial pollution have enough money to convince you that cow farts are bad and you have to stop eating meat. I mean, that's a real mind fuck. So 20 years ago, like people couldn't comprehend that. But now they're like, oh, I, I kind of see what's going on now. And (laughs) as you learn more about it, like, I think if it's a conspiracy theory, you dig into it, you start finding not substantial references and you go away. You ignore as arbitrary and dismiss it. But in all these types of things, like I bought uh, Prince Charles's book called Harmony in there, there's a bunch of occult symbolism, too. So like his ideas of harmony for the world. And he has those quotes where. Uh, you know, he he doesn't participate in black magic and these sort of things like nobody asked you, dude, if you participate, you know, <laughs> they, they asked you about spirituality, you know, <laughs> so he's just an interesting and character who has really never heard the word no his whole life except for can you be king yet? No. And then the person who kept telling him that died. So now he's like probably going on a big ego trip. I would be I would be surprised if he didn't try very hard to unfold his agenda urgently because, you know, he's got waning time on this spiritual plane
0: yeah 100 i mean looking at those fingers i don't think they're you know i think i don't think his hearts he's, <laughs> I mean, also, it's, he's also related to yeah.
1: dracula so you gotta count that yeah in too. count the count factor
0: super fascinating yeah those blood ties man it, it is really fascinating because like i i don't know the validity validity of this but i've heard this that like this was like a like a middle school girl had figured out that like uh like no, that's almost true. all of our presidents were except blood Frank- related except yeah, for exactly. one
1: so the way it works is all American presidents are related to King John I think it was Longshanks of England who did the Magna Carta I'm pretty sure that's the, the proper king except for Franklin Pierce he was a president who was not somehow related and if you think about it I mean people are like well you know that's just numbers and that's just thi-. I'm like no that's a thing that's a thing it's a thing You know, uh, Longshanks wasn't Genghis Khan, right? There shouldn't be this many people in power related to him. (laughs) And it goes to show, like, if you really want to become America, like American president, the people who have their eyes on America used to own America, maybe still do America. Like, I don't know if they own it right now. Who's in control? But it ain't us. It ain't Biden. Jeez. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So they have they play a long game and uh, it's it's still unfolding. It's yeah, interesting.
0: That, that is so fucking fascinating. When you look at things like that, that all these bloodlines are just tied together. And that so you ask yourself, well, Church, is it just Churchill's related to, or Churchill's related
1: yeah. to uh, Franklin Roosevelt? They're like 10th cousins. Yeah. Right? And so like, even during world war two, Churchill's not telling his relative the truth that he's running espionage against his relative. And that's the way world war one was. Cause they're all grandchildren of queen Victoria who comes from the, the German Saxe-Coburg-Gotha family from Germany that took over the British crown in the early 1800s. And by the time that she's uh, Queen Victoria, like in our time of the Civil War, they're fully, you know, so it's like a German-British, later, you know, the Zionists get in on that relationship, but there's a whole bunch of factions that are like, yeah, America could be useful if it was our our tool. Then they undermine our education to get people to accept that. And they propagandized us with, you know, Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and limited spectrum news. And, you know, and in the absence of not knowing how to question your way out, like my saying is literacy is literacy is a form of slavery until a method of critical thinking can be consistently practiced by the individual. Otherwise, you're just setting people up for failure. They don't know what is factor. They don't know how to parse it themselves. They don't have the codec to decode that information. So they have to store it as is. And I think sometimes like a lot of the things that they tell you on the news that there's a hidden virus in that stuff, metaphorically speaking, right? The yeah. virus is you, you said it was safe and effective. I took that in. I acted on that. And now I literally do have something floating around in my body, but that's not what I was talking about. Yeah, man. Well, that payload, all just an unexpected back. payload. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, it all ties it
0: back, man, to the awesome work that you're doing and teaching people how to think again. Uh, Because I know that I received my cats in the way. Sorry, (laughs) that's high production value, man. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I mean, it just ties it back together, man. Because I know the crummy education that I got, uh, and I had to go back and teach myself. And like part of my education was listening to the Peace Revolution podcast, man. So I appreciate you and all the work you do.
1: Well, right on, man. Um, I wanted to thank your audience for tuning into this. Cause I know it's just like, uh, another random guest. So anyone who tuned into this, I brought you something today. It's called my freedom vault. And, uh, I give it to people for free who like, you know, have attention spans that are longer than 45 minutes. So you can go to getautonomy.info forward slash freedom vault. I think that's where it is. Or you could go to grand and it'll pop up on the podcast page. And, uh, in between doing the, uh, the Grand Theft World podcast on Sunday nights. That's like six or seven hours, but the rest of my week is spent uh, helping individuals overcome the learning disabilities instilled by public schooling and helping them uh, self-actualize and uh, ignite their potential. And then we help freedom-minded companies uh, get their marketing and distribution and uh, sales up over at our consulting company. So whether you're an individual or you're a small business in the freedom community, we have designed solutions that help alleviate all the stuff we just talked about klaus schwab rockefeller all these people want these things that are bad for you and i say that's a shitty plan let's offer you some things that inoculate you from those ill things and let you move forward with the path of freedom and a lifestyle of liberty so thank you nick this has been great
0: absolutely brother thank you so much uh the great the powerful richard grove you're the man (laughs) thanks peace thank you brother